0: This is Comic Geek Speak, episode fifteen thirty-three. Book of the Month Club: Sandman Volume Four, Season of Mists.
1: And welcome to the show. I am Shane Kelly. I'm Adam Murdo. I'm Chris Eberly
0: And I'm Danny O'Brien.
1: And welcome to our Book of the Month Club: Sandman Volume Four, Season of Mists. But first, this episode is sponsored by InstockTrades.com. Go to InstockTrades.com for all your hardback trade paperback needs. If you see it on the website, it's in stock. Check out their top 10 best sellers, always an interesting look. Some great sales and deals on their website every time you go on. That's InstockTrades.com. Anything on the website that you see is in stock. Now, On to our next volume of season of – our next volume of Sandman, Mm -hmm. Season of Mists.
2: Mm -hmm. Latest in a series, and for my money,
3: the best one yet. I concur wholeheartedly, my friend.
1: Yeah, I'd agree. It was was a lot of fun to read. It's my first time reading it, and um, interesting things. I really enjoyed it. I'm
3: interested in hearing your opinion since this is the first time reading the Sandman series. I
1: I had a question about that. So when you read it – the first time around, mm-hmm. did you think it was great then or was it good and then it got great because of things that happened afterwards? it was great then. Okay.
2: Merd? <laughs> oh, <no>, me. <laughs> me. Okay. Uh, yes, yes, yes. It's, uh, well, for one thing, if we look at this – well, uh, I don't think this is spoiling anything for you, Shane. But uh, if you situate this in the uh, ever-expanding macro arc, the entire series arc – and I can only uh, half-intelligently make a statement like this because I haven't read the entire series to the end. I've only gotten as far as brief lives. Um, but uh, it, it seems to me that what we're seeing so far in this series is uh, the we're, – we're, we're tracing – uh, the, the gradual humanization of Morpheus, like he's uh, been freed from his decades of captivity and from that point onwards, he's learning more and more of uh, the error of his ways prior to having been uh, brought down by uh, the the family Burgess and uh, held captive for so many years. And, uh, and in this uh, arc, he uh, redresses one very prominent past wrong and uh, he's made to suffer a little bit in the process. Yeah, he suffers a major dilemma, a major well, issue, well, situation of political intrigue, shall we say. He's put in a very uncomfortable position by none other than Satan himself, and uh, Dream then has to use all of his creativity and uh, just kind of agonize about it for a while in typical you know, Dream style uh, until he finds a way out of it, and it's just – Well, you can see him sort of slowly learning certain lessons as we go here, very slowly, since he's an immortal being and they don't tend to learn their lessons quickly. Uh, But along the way, it's just – you see a portrayal of hell, which raises some interesting thematic points there too. Um, Then – well it's it 's just an engaging story if you want to read it on that level i mean it 's just uh, all of these uh, mythological figures, uh, some of them native to the d c universe, some of them from world mythologies, converge upon the dreaming and there 's this big uh, summit there, all kinds of intrigue going on, everybody trying to slip under the table, sub Rosa and uh, bribe Morpheus to take a certain action and uh, just it's really it 's kind of suspenseful there in in, in the very well, center chapters. Of of this trade, and so just following that, reading it on that level is satisfying enough. But then just uh, apply with the uh, the fine master's brush of Neil Gaiman, the uh, the themes that he's trying to address here, uh, many of which boil down to that we all live in hells of our own making. Um, It's it's satisfying on a number of levels, and but but uh, just for me it's mostly just the the uh, courtly intrigues of the uh, the, the, the gathering and in, you know, in the dreaming uh, which are also seen in microcosm in episode 0 when we finally get to see the entire endless gathered together for the first time that was a lot of fun to finally see and 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 I know
1: they're out there and I know some of them but it was it was fun to read read them all together and and a great way to introduce them for especially me who did not know all of them per se Nice little short descriptions, nothing overly done, but yet it made his point, and it wasn't too small of a snippet. It was, it was
3: just right. Well, it was... to, add, to piggyback on that, especially with the first appearance of all the Endless, except for Destruction, of course, who's mentioned, but you don't see him. Um, you know, I, I've read the whole series. I've I read this story, but it's probably been 15, 20 years since I've read it. So to read it again as, as a significantly older adult, because I probably read it in my early 20s. Um, has been such a thrill for all these books we've been doing and I'm so glad we're doing this all the way through mm-hmm. for the whole series but I'd, I'd forgotten how dramatic this installment of the Sandman saga is and how riveting this was to read and how masterfully uh, Game and the artist working with him how they left you hanging at certain uh, chapters like when Morpheus is going to leave his realm to go into hell and uh, this was I, this I think is one of the most epic and and exciting of all the Sandman uh, installments. There's, there's just – and I I echo Mert's and the, the, I love the – I've always been a fascinated and both – both repulsed and fascinated by politics. And I, so I really enjoyed, as Murd put it, the cordial intrigue you had going on here with the various personifications of various gods from various pantheons. Uh, this 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 story, there was so much going on here on so many levels. There's, there's some great comedy in the story. I love the loudish interpretation of Thor, which I'm looking forward to talking about a little bit. Uh, Lucifer's reasons for leaving hell, and as Murd mentioned, the way Gaiman interprets the meaning of hell uh, is fascinating. Uh, this, this is man. I well, mean, when-
1: and and even Morpheus himself, in in those middle chapters, much more cordial, much more of a good host. He really seemed a little bit concerned about making sure everyone had a good time Absolutely. Be,
3: it something that I did not expect well we have to we have to think about it this way i i would I would just say that he represents a certain uh, aspect of the human experience and and he has his own realm and his etiquette and so forth and again he's he's a he's a personification of an entity but he has guests and he wants to treat them with a certain etiquette uh, which was extremely well done yeah um, yeah I've been looking forward to talking about this I just finished reading this yesterday and I read this very quick like I really got into this and ripped through it I mean I was so I, I I'd forgotten how how riveting especially this went and by the way episode four the little kid in the Attic once again reaffirms what a great creepy horror writer neil gaiman is yeah that issue was creepy i forgot how and, how how disturbing that issue was and, that issue and, is i should say
1: it was creepy but it, it it wasn't unexpected and it wasn't gory yet it was it life was yet creepy. it was life affirming
3: at the end yeah <laughs> even though it was about people who are dead right uh-huh. so daniel what were your initial th- impressions
0: great um <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. Why did you put me on the spot because like this? You're well spoken my. No, no. I I know, but I just It's good. I I I don't know what to say. It's really well done. But I don't know. I just What
1: was it always your favorite? Uh
0: or Did you decide that after the whole story was over? I don't know. I don't actually remember having a favorite when I read it. I mean, I read this want to say in my early 20s so like 10 years ago or something like that and i read them all in trades i don't remember having a favorite one i know uh this is bill's sometime favorite one Mm -hmm. he goes back and forth between this one and another one he was actually kind of upset that he couldn't come to talk about it because he would have been much more well-spoken than i am about this Mm -hmm. he had to go like run magic or something
2: (sighs) lame yeah making money for the wild pig shop i know seriously man
0: i know such a douchebag, yes.
2: slave driver. You know, I bet he's not even there tonight. <laughs> you know, I don't think he's he probably is. Off having
0: fun. I know with his friends. Well, I almost I had know. A, a
3: laughing fit on the floor of the studio. So.
0: <laughs> I will say uh, this issue. Man, Morpheus is a douchebag. Can I just point that out? The fact that some lady turns him down, and he's like, "You're going to hell." It's like ten thousand years. Yeah, ten thousand years. Bye bye. Oh, you don't want to be with me. That was pretty awful. Well,
3: yeah. we we get to the scene uh, where he actually apologizes. Yeah, he, it's sort, of, of, it's he sort of, apologizes. I yeah. it's, it's almost funny. Yeah, I mean, no, it really like, is. He did to her, and like they're having this stilted, awkward meeting in one of his chambers, and it's it's it's, it's funny.
0: Thank God it, she slapped him. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And he was upset about the slapping, yeah. and you're kind of like, but you condemned her to hell for ten thousand years,
1: and and now you think about maybe you should apologize. Yeah.
0: I, I think I should probably apologize to you. That was – it, it is kind of amusing
3: actually. It's another great example of just how engaging and complicated the Morpheus character is because like all the great stories about you know polytheistic gods and pantheons, they all had these very human qualities. And in many aspects of the Sandman saga, he is not a likable being. Yeah. And, and you know that's that just makes the story that much more engaging for me anyway as, as a reader.
1: Well, and that, and that part in particular, I mean, I mean there's something that if if the roles were reversed in some way and he was trapped for 10,000 years, that would almost be nothing to him. I mean, you know, it, as, yeah. as, as much as it would be bad as much <clears throat> as he was captured in the beginning of the story of the whole series, really in layman's terms for him who can be alive forever and ever and ever and ever, 10,000 years compared to what she felt at it being 10,000 years Much different perspective, I think. As as much as he came out and he reclaimed his kingdom and and is trying to fix everything the way he wants it and the way it should be, I think he would have had a very different experience even though being in pain and tortured and all that through that time. That's a good point,
3: Shane.
0: And it was interesting that in the beginning, was it death who points out that, no, what you did was kind of cruel. Like he had no idea. She's the one who points out, you probably shouldn't have done that.
3: Death is often the sounding board for, for Dream Throne. Yeah. All right, she's the, the abyss Man that he has in. to look into and yeah. that also looks back into him. Well put, my friend. Yeah. So. And Murd, I'm looking forward to well, – I'll just touch upon it briefly in this intro. Even in a story as entrenched in the, the, the Sandman world that Gaiman is creating, there's a moment with the JSA and the Globe. And you're still reminded this is still in – the DC universe. I'd actually forgotten about that panel. It was such a thrill to see that because I, I I had the same experience. I totally forgot about that. I also forgot all about it and I was like,
2: holy crap.
3: And I mean I, I know what that represents. We can talk about that when we get to that part. Yeah, for but, sure. Uh, that, that, was a, that was a fun little Easter egg. I'd forgotten about it completely.
0: I do want to ask, um, when Lucifer leaves hell, does that go into the Lucifer – series i never read that book to be honest i never did yeah. either but i'm actually curious i've
3: heard it's very good but i've never read yeah. It, yeah
0: is that when the series starts or did they get that idea from reading sandman like let's go watch lucifer's Experiences on Earth.
2: Well, I'm, I'm sure that the answer to your second question there is yes. Yeah. Uh, whether or not that series uh, led directly
0: out of, yeah, it, I don't or know. If there's
2: supposed to be some time that mm-hmm. passed in between, or if in the real world, like, like like a publishing gap, or like a time passed in the DC Universe or the Sandman Universe. It's I don't really know. But I'm sure that it's the same Lucifer, and uh, he's just enjoying his uh, permanent sabbatical retirement. Okay, that's what I figured. I
1: I was glad we returned to him at the end because I actually, throughout the the course of the story, those middle chapters, kind of forgot he was out there. And for him to end the whole Mm -hmm. story, story arc and the way he did it, I, I kind of like that. That was cool. Oh, very much. The greatest
2: trick the devil ever pulled was in making Shane forget that he was in this story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm going along. Okay. Okay. And I'm like, oh, wait. Yeah. We should probably check in with him and see what he's doing.
3: Okay. Well, oh, that's why we dive in with the first installment.
2: Oh, yes. Sequence will give us structure. <laughs> It'll lend form and clarity to our remarks, hopefully. And,
3: by the way, the, the the Kelly Jones artwork. Oh, man. Oh, yeah.
4: Oof.
2: Yeah one thing i have noticed uh reading these in trade uh it seems that in the collected edition they have expunged the creator credits they're at the back from well, yeah i know they they've yeah. just concentrated them all to the no form with those
1: at the bottom of every page the where they would normally yeah, I have an older
3: uh-huh.
0: edition. oh yours is nice and it's the the, the,
1: those are fancy. the
3: those are the newest fully editions.
1: remastered edition i was going to say editions. that's recolored isn't it yes Yes, yeah, because
0: the one thing I kept noticing was the blacks were all different in the trade, and it was kind of bothering me a little mm-hmm. bit. But yes. I got over it.
2: I wish I had your edition, no, Shane. I, I was, have a very pretty copy. I miss.
0: It it does yeah, tell you're... you,
2: at least in the back, who did what in what issue. Yeah, yeah what I have chapter, that too. But...
0: Yeah. It looks like you have the same version that I have, and then Chris has a completely different version. It's amazing how many different yeah. things it's gone through.
3: And uh, Mike drinkenbird who – did a lot of work on the early issue of Sam and he actually rendered uh, episode zero. Okay. And then cool. Kelly Jones did just, you know, for the scorecard. Kelly Jones did penciled episodes one, two, three, five, and six, and Matt Wagner penciled episode four. So then you have P. Craig Russell inked episode. He's got, this, this book always drew big guns, right? P. Craig Russell inked episode three, George Pratt inked episode five, Malcolm Jones III inked episode zero, one, and two, Dick Giordano inked episode six. Hmm. Uh, the always irreplaceable Todd Klein was lettering, Daniel Vozo and Steve Oliph as colorist. These are all great creators.
0: Random question. Why are they called episodes and not issues? Is it with, like that with all of as a, them?
3: As a self-contained saga?
0: <clears throat> I'm just curious. Is it like that in all the trades? Or is it just know, happening to me? No, no to I, don't this one? So. I, don't I don't think, think so. I think just this one. Yeah. Okay. And
2: why episodes instead of chapters, say? Yeah,
0: because as chris was saying episodes i'm thinking why is he saying episode and then i happen to look and see oh it says episode yes, it's demon said episodes and i'm not sure how to
2: answer that question
1: well i'm being a, an arc inside the book it, it does kind of read like a television miniseries would i guess go along
0: yeah i'm just i'm actually kind of curious why cuz i imagine he chose it for a reason yeah. i don't feel as if he would ever choose something randomly
3: well, let's let's starting with episode zero, as it's as it's noted in the in the trade. Uh, Drinkenberg art, uh, the introduction of destiny. Wow, just by I found by introducing this character and his place in the pantheon of the endless, it just made this world of Sandman so much more epic and just vast in, in just its magnitude and what what the possibilities of it. Just because of that book he has and how he's you know. It, Oh, it's such a fantastic concept.
2: Was this the first time we'd seen Destiny in Sandman? I think.
3: I forgot. Honestly, I mean, I'm failing here. Is he the oldest? Yes, he's the oldest okay. member of the Endless. Mm-hmm.
0: And is this the first time – I can't remember. Is this the first time you're seeing the three women or they been they've volumes? been in previous volumes? They've been
2: in previous volumes. They've been around almost just since the beginning. Okay. Different ways. Yeah, Gaiman, Gaiman just loves his triple goddesses. He goddess really does. Archetype. It's yeah.
0: in all of his work. I just – I couldn't remember. Right.
2: And I've, I'm looking into our bound studio copy of Who's Who in the DC Universe here to because I know that Destiny, I, I believe, is the only member of the Endless who predates the Sandman series. Uh, yeah, Gaiman actually borrowed him. He's one of many old DC Comics horror comic hosts. Okay. That, uh, that rings a and bell, yeah. Gaiman yep. conscripted for use in the Sandman. Yeah, okay. He first, Destiny first appeared in Weird Mystery Tales number 1 and he was the all-seeing omniscient – Teller of tales from that massive
3: book chain to his wrist, and Gaiman just found uh, new uh, uses, which he's done with several DC characters throughout the Sandman mm-hmm. uh, saga. What I especially love in this story, uh, I always love the fashion sense of the Endless. Uh, so when the, when when Destiny, you know, calls them all into his gallery, remember each member of the Endless has a gallery where they can communicate mm-hmm. through paintings or sigils yep. or whatever. There's always the ritual. The formalities to, must yeah. be
2: observed. So they grab the sigil, yeah. of whichever mem- – one of their brothers or sisters they want to contact and say, I'm standing in my gallery and I'm holding your sigil. Will you talk to me?
3: And then I, I love how Morpheus appears in an 18th century like nobleman's yeah. outfit um, with a tri-cornered hat and you know uh, Desire's dressed up like an, an, an S&M, S&M outfit. Uh, despair is just <sighs> – so repulsive, and you know, and yeah. just wonderful in how repulsive she or he or it is.
0: Poor despair.
3: And uh, Delirium, who my favorite Salmon arc is actually Brief Lives, um, which we'll get to you know down the road. But Delirium plays a major role in that story. And Death always has the best fashion in, in Sandman when she puts on her formal attire because she's gently castigated by Dream for not being dressed appropriately yeah. Yeah. For, for the occasion. Even though she claims she hates wearing that stuff. <laughs> I also find interesting the Gaiman breaks and gives us a, 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 a summary, a prose summary with an illustration of each member uh, of The Endless, which I'd totally forgotten that was in there.
2: Little you know, portraits in prose yeah. of each
3: one of them, which you mentioned earlier, Shane.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I just absolutely loved it. This brilliant, minimalist characterization, just. Painting a picture in words and he chooses to share details of how tall they are, sizes, scents, smiles, sh- shadows, what kind of shadows they cast.
3: <sighs>
2: and
0: the, the best
3: part is – The ahead art and... is gorgeous.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask That's you. my favorite actually. The the death piece is beautiful. That's beautiful I, I mean that's what I mean. No, death right here. No, I'm saying oh.
3: Drinkenberg drew oh. death.
2: Oh, and oh and it's I've...
0: just they're all – I think this is the best art in the book. Mm.
2: Okay, Danny. Tried. as a designer, yes. what do you think of the uh, use of monochromatism? <laughs> one color for each member of the Endless.
0: It makes sense. I enjoy it. Uh, they did a, whoever laid it out did a very good job. And of course the Todd Klein lettering, always good. Mm. Except that uh, my, my one critique would be that the uh, the words went way too close to the edge in some of them. But that's mm. just a little, that's me. It wasn't a computer; it was hand lettering, so I can't complain that much.
3: the The key part, the the key moment of this, for me as a reader, that really engaged me in this story, though, was the multi page confrontation between Death and Dream on the on the let's call it the grand terrace of Destiny's uh, stronghold, where she's basically telling him, "Look, you treated Nada horribly, and you got to you got to make up for that." And he's all full of umbrage, and you know. But he, you know, he ultimately realizes that, yeah, I, I, I did wrong here, and it's, it's, it's the dynamic between them is one of the, I think, one of the best parts of the entire Sandman saga between Death and Dream, because even though they're these, you know, for lack of a better term, cosmic personifications of different aspects of human experience, they're also brother and sister, mm-hmm. and Gaiman masterfully maintains both of those realities, which again shows what a great writer he is. You never forget how powerful these entities are, but you also see how human they are too, and the way they interact. And I mean, death weeps when Dream has to go off eventually to hell. Yeah. So it's. I think this is one of the reasons why this this book is so lauded as it should be, as one I think one of the greatest comic books ever done, in, in my in my opinion, is because you have he never loses sight of the human, the palpable human interactions between these larger than life entities. So and I, that scene captures that very well.
0: They're great small moments. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: And just like any family would have.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It just does a wonderful job of taking these large – literally larger-than-life concepts and uh, collapsing them down into larger-than-life but still recognizably human personalities. And it's it's, it's just believable that uh, if these concepts were two-legged human beings, this is the way they react to each other. In death, I mean, it makes sense that uh, you know, if, if you're an existential absolute, if you're like a, the one of the major inevitabilities of mortal existence, that that would be enough to give a girl a, a good sensible viewpoint on things. You'd think so. She's it's understandable that she's kind of pragmatic, and she more than any of her siblings can get through to Dream when he's being his prickish self. <laughs>
3: And but, the drama – I'm sorry, Murr, go ahead. But
2: it does kind of beg the question. I mean if she and destiny have something in common there. I mean they're both uh, major inevitabilities and uh, death is uh, an inescapable part of destiny for all mortal beings. So why is she so much more likable? Why, why, why is destiny this uh, aloof, inscrutable figure and uh, death is just like uh, the, the nice girl who lives in the apartment upstairs who comes down and tells you you're dead?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well put, sir. <laughs>
2: Kind of like to see how death and destiny relate to one another. I don't know if we get very much of that.
0: Maybe it's because he's just wearing those robes so he has to be brooding and death's just – she's accepted her place and goes, I'm going to make the best of this situation. Do you,
2: you think she ever tells destiny off the way she does dream? I don't know. Or maybe destiny just doesn't need to be told off because he doesn't do anything but watch.
1: Yeah. yeah. I, I would say because he has his book, he has his his place, and he knows where everyone's heading – Whereas dream can take some liberties and, and death is just like – puts can put him in his place, but what's she going to do to the person that kind of knows where everybody's going?
0: Yeah. If you're if you are destiny and you kind of know that these things are always going to happen, yeah. it doesn't seem like you can have a happy-go-lucky life. Your life would be very brooding because you just kind of know everything.
1: You can't change it and you can't really help it. It's just yeah. there. Yeah.
0: You're kind of stuck because you know it's always going to happen and yeah. you can't change anything.
2: I suppose that there's a greater range of possibilities to experience in death than there
3: are in destiny. Yeah. Also the burden of being destiny, of having to be the caretaker of what is happening and what will, what will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the, look at the last three panels of the, the first installment. Talk further, sister. There is no need. He is returning to hell. It has begun, and then it just goes black. Yeah. The drama. I mean, if you have a heartbeat, you want to read the next issue. I mean, that's that's just masterful narrative right there. It's and, so and, well and
1: done. And it, it shows it wasn't a casual meaning. It wasn't something that, that Destiny wanted to just bring everyone together because it's been a while. It, it, there was a point to it. There's a purpose, and, and he had to do it because he knew what was going to happen at the
3: end of it. Should we uh, move to episode one? Mm-hmm.
2: Ooh, a couple of the uh, minor remarks I wanted to make. I loved the bit where uh, death uh, tells off desire. Yes, and actually uh, chastises him, her. So she chastens her, him, her, so she shuts up. Uh, I get the feeling that death could probably do that with just about any member of the family. It's just that uh, some of them give her more reason to than others. And I love Destiny's Garden because it's just ah a yes wonderfully crafted uh, spatial metaphor for just amorphous fate. You, know, I mean, it, you get tired of hearing people say life is a highway, life is a journey. <laughs> it's, it's kind of banal and frankly bourgeois. But uh, a garden, just that life is uh, just an aimless ramble through a garden where forking paths constantly appear and you just wander and wander and wander and get lost with no real idea of where you're going until one day you turn around, you discover you've come to the end of the path, you've reached a dead end, you look back and there's just one path behind you. Excellent. <laughs> it's much well, more exciting than life is a highway, and I'm going to ride it all night long.
3: Uh, episode one. If you want to render hell, get Kelly Jones. Man, it's just
0: gross looking.
3: Yeah, just <laughs> that opening page it's where gross. You know, just the bodies sprawled everywhere and these grotesque. Uh images of, of people being tormented and, and the demons who are doing the tormenting and the, the arm being chewed off and uh Oh what a great artist. Yeah, mm. it looks
1: like it would be smell gross, be gross, horrific screams. Mm. Nah, yeah, no, no fun at all. Nope, nope, <laughs> nope, 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 nope.
3: And his his rendering, I love Jones's rendering of Morpheus's facial expressions. Uh, and when you get to the the early page where he 's on his throne he's he 's uh addressing you know shall we say his palace staff mm-hmm. um, there 's just such an supernatural quality to it it 's almost you can you can almost not wrap your head around it like you you sense that you 're just seeing what you can comprehend as a human being of what 's actually going on here um the art is, and it just when when he has Morpheus have it has like stars shimmering in his eyes. Uh, it's beautiful. The
1: way this is, is is the reminder that he is as powerful as what you think he is. Oh yeah.
3: Hmm.
1: Well, when he's in the dreaming, definitely. Yeah, and could just dispatch however he wishes.
2: Yeah. One thing I'll say about this same scene, though, uh, I actually have this in my notes: Kelly Jones cheated us. And by that, I mean uh, we've got this gathering of all the different denizens of the Dreaming in this room, and all we see are some heavily black little That's true. headshots. And yeah. You get,
3: you get yeah. a few more a few pages later, like you see Merv um, Pumpkinhead. I don't think he's named yet at this point. Um, a few more. There's a profile of some of the, the palace staff there.
2: Oh, yes, not to take away from the other things that he does very well in this issue, as you've already stated, Chris, and with which I agree. But uh, he could have well, shown us a little more. You know, I'll have a few more of the you know, colorful characters who make the Dreaming their home.
1: Yeah, given us one good page or yeah. panel of Perez-like multitude of characters all drawn extremely well. Yeah.
2: Boom. I'm thinking like a shot of the Muppet Theater. Yeah, yeah. Like, like seen from behind the human guest star. Mm-hmm. Like in the opening sequence when they all go, why
1: don't you get things done Yeah, yeah.
2: We could have seen a whole mess of, of crazy creatures out there. Some of them we'd recognize. Other artists would have given us that.
3: What's wonderful here is, as Morpheus is preparing both his staff and himself for the journey to the underworld, which he may he knows he may not return from. He ta- again he takes, as Daniel mentioned, those smaller, quiet moments where you, you, again you see him as a more humanized figure. He goes to visit uh, the offspring of uh, Hector Hall Sandman, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, which is Daniel. Now, Daniel's important. Because you guys haven 't read the whole series yet, so just don 't forget about it. Well, I think
2: I have an idea what 's going to become of dan yeah. and just before uh, he makes that uh, visit well, well, not just before, but a few pages before, during the same scene where he 's addressing the uh, the assembled dream folk he 's uh, telling them uh, you know how to make preparations for the eventuality of his death, and he does say in one panel, "If I am destroyed, another aspect of dream mm-hmm. will fill my shoes, so the role of dream." He's revealing here is something greater than the uh, which only makes sense so entity that's to be. fulfilling yeah. that role right now. I trust you will all make my reassumption of the role, you know, in a different incarnation, an easy one. And yeah, then later the in the same issue, I was going
0: to say, do you think he regenerates?
2: Yeah, He's the doctor.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and also, anytime you have Hob Gadling coming in a Sandman story, it's always a treat because, you know, he 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 fetches a particular vintage of wine from a dream, um. That I think adventure can't get anymore in in the corporeal world, and then uh, you know he visits Hobb in his dream, and, and these conversations are some of my favorite aspects of all the Sandman stories because Hobb is just he's like an everyman, right? And besides the fact that Morpheus granted him immortality, but their conversations, you know, again, it really brings out the the relatable aspects of the Morpheus character, yeah, um, and you can see why he. Keeps returning to get to Hob in through over the centuries because, in some ways, it may be an anchor for him to, to to relationship that that's you know like a real friendship uh, in a sense.
1: Yeah, and that's where it all started. That's yeah. where his his humanization really really got yeah. going. Um, I also love when Matthew shows up.
3: Oh, Matthew's great great concept. Again, you have this. Reincarnated human in the form of a raven, mm. and um,
2: I don't think we know which human yet.
3: No, not no. at this point. Yeah. Although hints are being dropped yeah. all over the place. Yeah. But um, again, characters like Hobb and Matthew, they're also there for the audience because it's like your way into this world you really can't fully comprehend. Yeah. You have these anchors who are just – like you, if you were there, and the way they speak and their their perspectives and their impressions, and it's 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 these are master strokes by Gaiman in terms of how he constructs his narrative.
0: I think what's interesting is the more I I'm starting to, as everyone's talking, I'm starting to form more opinions about what I read, and the story is it is epic because he's you know granted the key to hell and. He has to figure out who's going to take over Hell. But if you think about it, a story like that could have been very grandiose and epic and awe-inspiring. But it's really more, it's quiet. Everything about it is very quiet. There's quiet little moments and there's great intensity. But I think what's so good about Gaiman is... He doesn't fall into those traps of going over the top yeah. with something like this. Let's resolve this with a fight scene with a cast of thousands yeah. of extras. and there isn't like the idea that Lucifer, you go in and you're expecting oh, it's, oh, dream I was totally to have expecting. this. Yeah, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Uh, you know, you're expecting this epic battle, and and you're not even let down by the fact that Lucifer left. You're more curious and wanting to know what's going to happen next. And that's what's amazing about Gaiman, because in anyone else's hands, it would not be anywhere near as good. And especially because you're so used to superhero comics, where it would have been an epic battle to the death, and you don't get that. You just get all these amazing quiet moments that come together to make this epic story. But it's not crazy epic, if that makes sense. No, I, I well put, my dear. Yeah.
2: What I'm about to say is a bit of a tangent. In fact, it's a complete digression, but uh (laughs) – If you take the, what you're saying right now and mm-hmm. uh, we'll invert it, mm-hmm. uh, it explains what I don't like about the Hobbit movies that are being made right now by Peter Jackson. Well, because, because they, they, they go the, – they fall into the crazy epic trap. Yes. See, if, if Gaiman had screenwritten them, for example, mm-hmm. they would have been a little more like – just small – it's the story of a very small fellow uh, traipsing and wandering and stumbling his way through a wider world. One of my favorite scenes – Doesn't get bogged down in enormous fight scenes. Yeah.
3: And one of my favorite scenes in the third Hobbit movie, which otherwise bored me. Because of what you're talking about, bird, mm-hmm. was after the whatever cataclysmic battle is as ensued, yeah, which isn't really in the book because yeah. uh, poor Bilbo was unconscious for most yeah, of it. Exactly, Bilbo and uh, Gandalf are just kind of sitting there, and they kind of look at each other, and you, you, the bomb between them is so palpable. It's, it's one of the few scenes where I was like, "Wow, this is great!" And then otherwise, I was like, "All right, they're fighting again." Um, so. It's really hard to do that effectively in a story. Mm-hmm. And to make that like a thread that the whole arc, as Gaiman is doing here, that, that takes a writer of such consummate skill. Because it's easy to put in the big battle. It's e- I mean, it's great, great something for an artist to draw, it can be very impressive. But in terms of a story, it's easy. And it can often be lazy. And uh, that's no, I don't think anyone can ever accuse Neil Gaiman of being a lazy writer.
0: Um, no, not at all. And, so,
1: and out of those hobbits, the first one was the best.
2: I still think that was a worthy movie.
0: I didn't I even see the third one. Bill went and saw it on the honeymoon, and I was like, have fun. I'm just <laughs> going to stay here.
3: <laughs> I'm going to sit on this uh, balcony and watch a sunset. Yeah, pretty Be much. Somewhere. And uh, we, you know, we meet Lucifer again. And again, like Daniel said, you think that you're being set up now for this massive – Oh, yeah. – you know – and no-holds-barred confrontation between the two.
1: And part of me thought, oh, okay, we've we've seen so many grotesque, gross things already. Do I really need to see <laughs> yet another yeah. gross battle from hell? Oh, uh. And I was actually dreading it a little bit. And then you get to it completely different than what you expect. <laughs> and I enjoyed the, the breather, the, the relief of that.
3: And one of the last pages where... Gaiman puts on, excuse me. Well, it looks like Gaiman, but Morpheus puts on as he puts it mm. his helm of office. The Kelly Jones art is breathtaking as he dons his his cloak and the helmet. Oh yes, the body language, yeah. the way he positions his hands. Yes, and then it's like he's striking a
2: a ballerina's pose. Yes,
1: that that middle panel. I love the Batman esque pose yes. of
2: it all.
0: Oh my God, the coloring! Sorry, you just flipped it oh, over yeah, the, and the, the new the edition is beautiful it's so beautiful oh. yeah, yeah the difference wow. in coloring it's yeah.
3: wow you have the purple
0: cloak yeah yeah i have that mine's
1: very very blue yeah
0: because i'm going to say something that people probably aren't going to like but i don't like the artwork that much
3: oh you don't like kelly jones
0: not that much okay <laughs> not
2: alone in that department if matt were here he'd just agree with you on general prince and, matt probably hates the tall batman era, yes right oh mm-hmm. i hate that yes. i hate <laughs>
0: that so much but looking at it with the new coloring and the solid inking i actually i do like it better i think i cuz the older editions the blacks there's some blacks that are very heavy black and some that are more bluish it's just the difference because of the coloring of that time it doesn't look as good and i it, there's something about it that, off-putting for me personally
1: the only thing i wish didn't have in these editions these these remastered ones i don't like the shiny paper oh i hate and i'm sure the the what are they omnibus or absolute Mm -hmm. versions have the nice flat paper with this kind of coloring. yeah i don't
0: remember bill has that at home but i don't i don't know
3: any more comments in episode one nope
2: um I, i i like the use of cane Oh I'm, yeah I'm glad the that, messenger. Uh, yeah, he found a great uh, use for that character here just you know a nod to his biblical roots, you know the fact that uh, he's he's not only the uh, former host of uh, House of Mystery, he's also right. uh, you know the first murderer from the Bible. And uh, just, I just love the way he's uh, portrayed here too. I mean, he's uh, he's got something in common with Lucifer here. They're both uh, well early creations of uh, the Creator, presumably the monotheistic Judeo-Christian God. And um, he's got his mark in place. And I, I just love the fact that uh, Lucifer is posturing around him and just uh, sort of toying with him like cat with mouse, and uh, describing this whole cultic religion that sprung up around Cain. And Cain is just kind of sniffs, polishes his glasses, and like, hmm, I wouldn't know. Like he's just so prosaic about the whole yep. thing. He doesn't care about anything except telling stories and murdering his brother that's, over and over again. That's yeah. Cain's focus, yeah. and it's it's just his small mindedness here is almost inspirational. You know, talking about the use of hobgadling over yep. and over again, and just and, and and Matthew the Raven too, just keeping things in scale, uh, comprehensible to human readers, keeping things on the human level. Kane uh, helps to ground the proceedings here too, just the way that he just doesn't know anything about these cosmic chess games that people like Lucifer and Morpheus engage in, he doesn't want to know anything about them. He's just—he's there because his boss told him to, and he just wants to deliver the message and get home and get back to eviscerating his brother. He's forced to be the unwilling audience to uh, uh, Lucifer's posturing, which is—it is all part of his putting on a show because he's—he's uh, he's falsely foreshadowing. He, he's building uh, his uh, hellish minions and also the readers up to uh, false expectations, as you guys have already mentioned, of this big. Uh, epic battle that we're expecting to happen between him and Morpheus in the next issue that simply does not happen. And then... And he just uh, conscripts Kane as a part of this, this little showmanship that he's doing.
3: And as we get into uh, episode two, one of the things Gaiman and his artists do very well throughout the Sandman series is creating these moments where he he makes you aware of how vast and I guess infinite... The world Morpheus travels in, and how there 's all these different uh, sort of way stations or places that kind of connect worlds, like I think about in the, in the first volume when he 's standing on the dock at the end of his realm, it kind of just it goes off into the into into the black or the cosmos, and here he, he he travels through the empty places, the nothing wind traveling from nowhere to nowhere in the uncreated wastes. I am so cold. You know, so he has got to go through this like this conduit of nothingness from his realm to to hell it's just it's just a gripping visual oh, and don't you just love the form he has to assume
2: to travel oh. through it's like he has to become nothingness yeah. to travel through there's nothing to him except a big huge well tattered cloak like and the, the helmet, wings of yeah. a bird and helmet there's no morpheus there anymore like he has to negate himself in order to pass <laughs> through
1: and i wonder if the helmet helps keep that solidified through the nowhere
3: maybe so I- Look at the rendition of The Gates of Hell.
0: <laughs> it's... Creepy.
3: Ugh. Mm-hmm. Gross. Yeah. I mean, look at the, the, the eyes, the mouths, the orifices. Yes. I mean, it's... There's only vicious.
2: two or three artists I can think of that could have drawn that better than Kelly Jones. Yeah. It's... Bernie Wrightson's one of them.
3: Wrightson's uh, a good pick, yep. God. Wow. And look how small, in terms of scale, yeah. Morpheus is as he approaches the gate. I mean, he's he's diminutive. It, well, it took me a couple
2: of minutes before I could even find him. Yeah, It's just this little smudge with footprints down here in the lower right.
3: But as as Shane and Daniel said, you think, all right, when's the shoe going to drop? He enters hell. Nobody's there. So, and, you know, and you kind of up, that's not as not not by design. Yeah, not as not in her prison, because we saw her there in 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 um doll's house that they yeah. they, they noted that.
2: Well, and, and, and actually, and, I think it was just the the very first trade too, when he had to go to hell to retrieve his uh, helmet. From Coran's on. The That's English. what I'm thinking of. I'm sorry. Yeah. And yeah, he yeah. passed, not of. his cell. And, and...
3: Etrigan took, took him past to torment mm. him. That's right, yeah.
1: I also think at this point he's he's prepared for battle. He's he's ready for the worst, and he's going in, chest all puffed, thinking he's either going to go out in a blaze of glory or he's going to save his old love, and he's all, you know, all, all testosterone. And then all of a sudden he gets deflated, completely deflated, confused, and... Took Took
3: everything that he was building for out of it. Well, when Lucifer tells him with this Joker-like grin that I've quit, mm-hmm. the next three panels of of Morpheus' facial reaction to that news, yeah. oh, it's, it's mesmerizing artwork. Uh, like he's poised to fight, and then he just looks, looks perplexed, and then he's just kind of deflated with shock and surprise. It's –
1: and you can almost—it's not even—it's not even, it's not even worded, worded here, but I could see a what, huh? What? 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 Like, like what David Tennant would do mm-hmm. as a doctor every night? What? Yeah. Huh? What? What?
3: And I love the uh, and Murd alluded to this. Gaiman is really emphasizing that in this story that hell is not what we imagine it to be, you know, as it's portrayed in the Bible or popular culture. It's whatever. People want it to be, and people basically consign themselves to hell they've duped themselves into thinking that they were put there because of their sins, but as by the time you get to the end of the arc, you realize people can leave hell whenever they want, really, they just have committed themselves into thinking that they're supposed to be there essentially, mm-hmm. and the great exchange with this long forgotten petty tyrant mm. um, Breshaw of Livonia, yeah. And he describes you know, all the terrible things he's done and how you know, he's got nails protruding out of his torso and he's chained and so forth. Yeah.
2: You think he's uh, making confession. Yeah. And he's actually you know, in some way contrite for his – but you no, know, he, he's actually just name-dropping his own – he's yeah. just reciting his resume. Yeah. He, he thinks that his position in hell here is like a kind of status symbol and he treasures it and he also doesn't want to let go
3: of it. Yep. And and Lucifer just says, the world has forgotten you. Ugh. Oh. <laughs> it's 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 crushing, and they just says go, and then the guy vanishes to limbo. You assume it's
2: just a great excuse for a Gaiman to show off his knowledge of obscure hi- historical yeah. bogeymen, and also to you know, illustrate his main theme.
3: Again, I love the intersection of the commonplace with the supernatural. The three laggard demons sitting around the campfire because they they don't want to leave all they've ever known, which is hell. So they're just kind of hanging out beautiful and mighty
1: grotesque
3: yes Oh, I, the grotesquerie here is is grotesquerie a word murder it absolutely yeah, okay. is it's 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 beautiful <laughs> it really is
2: oh yeah I love the design of uh of Kettley, the uh, half wolf half uh, praying mantis demon
3: and you know Lucifer is just walking around sealing the last gates yeah. ejecting the last few stragglers Um. We hear mention of the Silver City, which you assume is, quote, heaven essentially, or at least the domicile of the Judeo-Christian god and the angels. Uh, I love the gratuitous uh, money shot of of Lucifer French kissing the – the one loyal demon who doesn't want to leave. Mazakine, yeah. the one with the uh, well half a face. It, it's yeah. fun to try
2: and decipher her dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can if you just concentrate really hard on the vowel sounds and uh, speech rhythms.
0: It was really hard. I had to kind of read it out loud to myself to kind of understand what she was saying. There you go. It's all part of the fun.
3: Uh, you you got to appreciate not just the significance of this book but also – it challenges you and it makes you think and that's certainly a good thing. Um it's it's not it's not a lazy read. I mean
0: But at the same time as you pointed out, it's a fast read. Oh
3: yeah. This is this this was of uh, the four we've we we've, we've read or I've reread here, this one I read the fastest. Yeah, I read I really it, ripped through it. I read it in yeah. two nights, yeah. whereas
0: the last trade I felt took me forever to get through, and that was only what, four stories? The dream the dream country. Yeah. yeah. Well
1: and then the the last thing that has to happen is he loses his wings again because you imagine he had him as an angel and fallen. Mm-hmm. Now he has these bat-like
3: wings. Right. But just – you see Lucifer's just sheer delight in, you know, burdening Dream with this conundrum. Mm-hmm. Now, what are you going to do with the key? I mean this is not a gift by any stretch of oh, the imagination. No. Yeah. This so, is a means of torture. Yeah. <laughs> this is how we will make dreams suffer for the, the humiliation. Yeah. Any more thoughts on episode two?
2: Ooh, well, um, well, as uh, well, Lucifer Morningstar vanishes. Uh, he hands uh, Lucifer the key, and uh, the last words we see are "I feel cold," which is chilling, no pun intended. And it's uh, it also creates a little uh, symmetry between uh, the end of the, that, ish, that episode and the beginning when uh, Morpheus is flying through the void and thinking, "I am so cold." Yep. Yeah, but between this chapter and the one before it, chapter one, we've got some great monologizing put in the mouth of Lucifer here. So uh, Gaiman is hardly making worse use of him than John Milton himself did. He's really – he's generating some genuine sympathy for the devil here. You really see things through his eyes. You know It's what might once have been called like postmodern deconstruction of the Manichaean Satan figure. Uh, and you're really – you get to see things from his perspective. You understand how he might after all these years just feel very human since you – know, as you said before, you, uh, pantheons, whether we're talking about the endless or like the angels and devils of Judeo-Christian mythology or, or Greek mythology or whatever, uh, they always tend to uh, assume certain human – Foibles, frailties, feats of clay, and in this case, he's experiencing restlessness on discontent. I mean, many people in the late eighties, as indeed today, also could sympathize with being stuck in a dead end job. Again, no pun intended. Uh, for as it's hard enough to work certain jobs for one year, let alone your whole most life, most of eternity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's so Satan is just kind of bored. And the way he's just uh, going on about how he's not really evil. He doesn't make anybody do anything. He's really hitting, driving Gaiman's point home in his rants. And he's saying all of this to Cain in the in chapter one and the episode – well, the last episode. And now he's saying a lot of the same stuff to Morpheus and uh, actually directly quoting Milton. And he has to explain to Cain who has no idea what he's talking about and therefore Gaiman explaining to the reader that he's quoting Milton. But yeah, you just it, – it, it helps to – you understand that Satan is really more – he's really more the prisoner here than the people uh, because it's, it's like he, he's not this great force for evil. He's not this corruptive influence on mankind. He's more like the beleaguered spa manager at a, at a resort <laughs> for, for masochists, very demanding, picky masochists too, and he has to attend to all of their needs. And does he ever get any time to pamper himself? No. So that's why he's he's de- departing here. And so the, the reader is left to ponder – well, Morpheus is left uh, with this big mess in his hands and the readers are left to ponder, oh, all right. So maybe it's all our fault. Maybe this is really what we – hell really is what we all want for ourselves.
0: Doesn't it, he point out at one point saying like people like to say the devil made me do it but I didn't make anyone do anything? Yep, yeah,
2: Pretty much exactly what he said, yeah. yeah. That was part of one of his big speeches to Cain.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting take on the devil because you always – you're taught that the devil is evil, and, and he's not. He just got a bad deal. Really. Well,
2: devil's just uh, catching whatever's thrown into his lap pretty mm-hmm. much, and he doesn't even want that when it gets there.
0: Yeah, because then in the, at the end of the story, pretty much almost the same thing happens to the other two angels in a way.
2: Except they're a little more idealistic about it, at yeah. least at first, mm-hmm. so, as we'll see.
0: Yeah. Episode three.
2: Episode three, which is for me, um, I don't have a whole lot of notes about episode three, but it's uh, basically it says entertaining chessboard setup as we're being introduced to a lot of players here all of a sudden.
0: Yeah, I, I like the introduction of all the different gods. It's definitely something that Gaiman likes to do. I mean, he wrote a novel called American Gods. He has he enjoys, you know, the god characters and writing about them and you know i did uh, as chris said it before the the take on thor was really funny and (laughs) it's almost like was he taking a dig at marvel comics at that or was 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 he
2: when he calls himself the mighty thor yes there's your giveaway it wasn't entirely a, a dig. There, there was no.
0: Not a dig, but, you know, just, just one little jab right a there. poking. Yeah. The, it's the rest of it, it's poking. more
2: just his uh, deconstructing the mythological yeah. icon more it, it, than what Marvel has done. It's the kind him, of thing
3: where it just reminds you that the myths of Asgard were run along before mm-hmm. Stan Lee and mm-hmm. Jack Kirby yeah. got their hands on yeah. Thor, and they cleaned him up quite a bit. They
2: cleaned yeah. all those characters up quite a bit, to make them presentable to an early Silver Age audience.
3: I mean, later on when Thor is, you know, Wiping up his vomit from the carpet with his beard—I mean, it's gross, <laughs> but also hilarious—and
0: then apologizing for it.
3: <laughs> this issue, I love the the uh, introduction of Loki and how he's portrayed uh, in in this story. Is... Another trickster on the loose yes, in the Sandman mythos.
2: We've already got yeah. Robin Goodfellow running around, right? And now Loki. Oh yeah, the sequence in the cave—just to you know, just the archetypicality of it all the (laughs) symbolism the woman the man the woman the snake the bowl it's not nice or pretty but it's true and it's necessary it has been going on for a very long time which is as much as to tell us this is uh, symbolic of things that are true in people's lives um so i maybe see it as an uh, allegorical tableau of the relationships often toxic between men and women men are shit heels to the women but the women still catch the poison and stay by the man's side and on it goes and so it goes and so it goes so not pretty but true
3: and therefore fun to read and just the the excitement of taking a this impending meeting and it's it's riveting i mean very very different uh example but i think of in Casino Royale, the 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 James Bond film, uh, the Peter Sellers version, the or? <laughs> Daniel Craig version. Okay. But the most riveting part of the movie for me was the poker game. Oh yeah, yeah. And there was no, I mean, well, he had to run out because he was poisoned at one point. But that aside, it's just them playing poker, and yeah. it's it's riveting. And I mean, very different type of story, of course. But here, it just the anticipation of these these various cliques or factions from different pantheons of the Egyptian gods and Japanese and, and so forth and so on all coming together and they all want hell and you're thinking to yourself, okay, why do all these entities want hell? Like, what what advantage are they hoping to gain out of it? And that, that was just fascinating to see.
1: And, and some of them are just yeah. to keep it closed.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think I enjoy the one, there's the one page with the, the lady who's outside talking to the crow and she's just calling Morpheus out on his actions, like he's being a child and it, I just find it really funny. And then in the next scene, he's just like, go away. He's just, he's being a little child at this point. <laughs> and then it's so funny that, you know, when he starts receiving guests and all of a sudden he's putting on the show of I am royalty and this is how I treat my guests. But in the beginning he's having a little temper tantrum because he doesn't want to have the key to hell. Yeah. It's kind of funny.
1: and, and it, it's his own fault, sort of unexpectedly, but he's stuck with
3: it nonetheless.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: We have to remember that throughout... There's mo- many times throughout the Sandman series we haven't gone to yet where, where Morpheus is very moody. and th- You see that more than once.
1: Well, and, and and I can easily see this being extremely moody given mm. what he thought was going to happen, what didn't happen, and the end result. Yeah. Not only is he stuck with the key, he didn't accomplish anything he wanted to do, and now what? He's got all these guests coming to try and sway him to release hell to them.
2: Does Dream ever grow out of it? Are there signs of him improving,
3: becoming less moody? You have to keep reading, sir. And so I shall.
4: And that will end part one of Sandman's Season of Mists. There was a snowstorm in the area this evening, and when we paused to see how it was going, it was determined that we would stop and get everybody home because Chris and Danny had a long drive back to New Jersey. So we will pick up later, probably sometime in mid-February, Part 2 of the Book of the Month Club, so stay tuned for that. Uh, This episode of Comic Geek Speak was brought to you by InStockTrades.com. Go to instocktrades.com for all your hardback and trade needs. And if it's on the website, it's in stock. If you want to leave us an email, our address is comicgeekspeak at gmail.com. You can leave a voicemail at 267 702 6642. You can go to thecomicforums.com and talk back about this episode as well as many other topics. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. We want to thank everybody who contributed to the show. We couldn't do it without you. And as always, we're uniting the world's mightiest heroes, one listener at a time.